So I've heard it said that every Christian wants accountability until they actually get it. Right? No one likes people being in our business, really. Quite frankly, we don't like the thought of being accountable to anyone but ourselves. And that's part of the reason I think that so many people don't believe the gospel. We don't like the thought that there's a God who has standards and who's going to hold us accountable to those standards someday. But for Christians, we realize we've fallen short. We get that. And we've turned to Jesus for help. And so because of that, we know deep down accountability is really, really good for us. Let's give some examples. Everyday life. Have you ever found yourself at work quickly clicking off fantasy football or Facebook because you heard your boss? Uh, a couple of laughs, right? But if you knew that was a temptation, just something that you're going, mm, I have a temptation towards this, you wouldn't have even tried that if you had turned your computer towards the door, right? Have you ever been tempted to become angry with your children, but then you looked around, you realized you're at work or at, at church, and so suddenly you just get a little bit more patient? I think this is part of the reason why when you're driving, they have those flashing speed signs that show you your actual speed in real time, right? It brings you face to face with exactly how fast you are going. And uh, I think that's good, right? Because when your speed, when my speed's blasted all over the road, I usually slow down. That's the point. This isn't hypocrisy. This is simply recognizing that we don't always have all the power by ourselves that we need to always do the right thing all the time. Even as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Word of God, we have the local church, we love Jesus, but we still live with indwelling sin. It's just kind of part of the deal. And so one of the surest signs of Christian maturity is that we need help. We recognize we need help, and then, quite frankly, we don't trust ourselves too much. Or maybe let's put it the way our text does today. There are some things you just wouldn't do if you knew that Jesus was standing at the door ready to go. Right? Ooh, <laughs> that gives you, um, it, it, it does something to you. And, and I think that's what this text is supposed to do today for the, for the believer. Right? There's a healthy accountability that comes when we recognize that Jesus is coming is near. And our passage today also recognizes that sometimes it's just easier to give in to sin than others, especially when we're suffering, when we're hurting, when we're struggling. We're just weak people. So let's put this passage in context, okay, because it actually starts all the way back in the beginning of chapter 5 and verses 1 through 6. So at that point, James is addressing unbelieving rich people. So unbelievers who are rich and, and got rich because they were um, oppressing people. So they were, they were um, getting their wealth through wicked means and then they were using their wealth to continue to abuse people. And he reminds them as a stern warning, Jesus is coming again and he's coming relatively soon. And when he comes, there's going to be judgment. Okay, but then in seven, verses 7 and 8, he switches to address the believer. And he says the exact same reason that unbelieving people should repent is the same reason that you should be patient. He says, I know you're suffering, but Jesus 
is coming soon. Right? He's coming again, and he's coming soon. And, and when he comes, there will be justice, but there will also be sweet relief. So there's an amazing relief for Christians to hold out for when we wait for the fact that Jesus is coming again. And, and then now in our verses 9 through 12, James pulls back in how he addressed the unbelievers, that, that aspect of judgment, and, and brings it to bear on the Christian. He says, okay, so we're waiting, but how do we act while we wait? What does it look like to be patient? And in particular, and this is a huge theme in James, what should our words look like? And in all of his instruction, he wants us to keep firmly in mind the fact that Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. So with the remainder of our time today, we're going to talk about three ways to watch our mouths while we're suffering. Three ways to watch our mouths while we're suffering. So the first way is to guard against grumbling. And this is coming straight from verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So there's a lot in that. But let's focus on the word that, that jumps out first, that word grumble. What does it mean to grumble? Because we're not supposed to do it. So to grumble is actually like to groan. New Testament scholar Doug Moo says it's, it's typically an expression of frustration from the people of God who are suffering oppression or even judgment. They're groaning, they're grumbling, they're crying out. So we know that New Testament's written in Greek, Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but there's a translation of the Old Testament in Greek. And so we can see words that um, are used in the New Testament that were also used to translate Old Testament words and, and find some, some themes. So in that translation of Exodus 2.23, the Israelites were groaning, there's that word, grumbling, groaning in their slavery and crying out to God. That's the picture. And God heard them. But then here in our text, James says, do not grumble against one another. So they were taking their groaning under suffering and turning it against their brothers and sisters. It seems that under the enormous pressure they were facing, Christians were turning against one another as if their brothers and sisters were the reason for their problems. And I think we understand this. When we're under pressure, it's quite frankly easier to sin. And then we can irrationally reach out and blame whoever it is that's around us at the time, including our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we do this with objects, right? So this is just Greg now. There are few things with greater ability to induce anger in me than my line trimmer, my weed whacker. So maybe some of you all out, uh, out there are lawn pros. I'm not. When that thing's working, it's great. <laughs> I love that thing, right? It, it keeps my edges clean. We're in good shape. But as soon as the line breaks and gets stuck inside the housing, I know it's there. I just got to get it out again. Then, and, and there are times when I wonder if it might just be easier to throw the whole thing out and start over again at that point, because I know what's coming. I've got to find the little tabs and squeeze, maybe get my key out to get it open, wind it up again, and then hope that I can get the cap back on before it all unspools. And somewhere in that process, I'm, I'm starting to blame the trimmer. I'm starting to blame the manufacturer of the trimmer. And I'm starting to blame whoever it is that had the idea to invent trimmers in the first place. 
I got an amen for that in the last sermon or the last service. (laughs) Right, so there's something like that for you. But we don't just do that with objects. We also do this with people. And the closer people are to us, the more likely they are to feel our wrath when we're under pressure. We have a tendency to turn on our own team. But why do we think this is? Why do we think this happens? I have uh, two suggestions for why I think this might be true. The first, I think it's because we have a comfortability with those who are around us, those who are close to us. I know my wife's not going anywhere. I know that my kids need me. And so to my shame, when under pressure, it's just a little bit easier to loosen up especially in my words, because it's not as clear in the moment what the consequences are, right? But I know if I'm at work, I'm going to keep things buttoned up around my boss, Bill Dinsmore, because I could get fired, right? It's just a little bit easier. So I think there's a comfortability with people that we're we're close to that makes it easier to, to loosen up with our speech. And then second, when we're suffering, we're weak, And in our weakness, we can feel insecure. And we don't want more pain. And so we become suspicious against those close to us precisely because those are the people most able to hurt us. So in our sinful response to suffering, we can forget who's on our own team. And so this passage, what it does is it deals specifically with our team, with Christians in the local church and how we can turn on each other under suffering. And I think we can all resonate with this, right? Guys, it has been a tough year, year plus. Not just for the church in America, but for our church in particular. The enormous pressure caused by the weight of overlapping trials has created an environment where oftentimes we forget just who's on our team. And then under pressure, we can become suspicious of one another, and therefore we feel justified in our grumbling against one another. And then we do things we would never think befitting of a Christian. We find ourselves gossiping and making slanderous accusations. And then when others do it against us, we feel that much more justified to do it against them, right? How in the world do we end this? I know James says stop, but how? At this point, James clearly and carefully reminds us that Jesus is standing right at the door, ready to go. And when he knocks, he's not going to be waiting to be invited in. He's coming as a judge. This verse says we are not to grumble so that we Christians may not be judged. That, that's the healthy, healthy and holy accountability that I need whenever I'm tempted to act out in my pain in sin towards others. As one commentator puts it, the coming Lord is also the judge of the Christian. There's a tension there. Does that make you uncomfortable at all? That Jesus is our judge? Because while it's true that those that God's called out of sin to himself who respond in faith and repentance to his son who received the free gift of salvation, we are God's forever. We will never, ever be cast out. That is 100% true. Faith alone saves, but we've been in James for a long time now, right? We know saving faith is never alone. And whereas in verses seven through eight, if you were 
here last week, James is, is willing to lean more into that, to give encouragement towards the Christian. Now he's willing to lean a little bit the other way. We, we need to be careful we don't lose focus of this, but we want to we go with the lean that this passage has towards this accountability, right? We, we cannot forget that Jesus comes as a judge. Our faith works. And, and further, it seems that there will be an accounting of all that we've ever done when Jesus returns. That's, that's the kind of judgment we should anticipate experiencing. For, for unbelievers, that, that won't be a good day if you've spent your life rejecting Christ. That's the hard reality. But to those, those of us who are his, we are going to be commended for how we spend our time. Look at Matthew 25, 21 in the parable of the talents. Jesus tells the story about a master who was meant to be God and a servant who was faithful with what he was given on this earth. And, and it's something we're, we're supposed to want to hear. The master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. If you're truly a Christian, that's what you want to hear. And because you love him, it's because we love him that we want to please him, that we want to obey him. And so in light of that reality, right, we're couched in love. In light of that reality, let me ask you, when you think back on this past week, was there anything you said or anything you typed against a fellow Christian that if at that moment Jesus was right at the door, your heart would have sunk to hear Next time we're tempted to grumble against our fellow believers under the load of stress, we can use this passage, this truth, this reality as a motivation. So when you think you're justified in thinking the worst of someone because of your disagreements, when you begin to share your wife's or your child's failings in a not helpful way with a friend, when you think the coast is clear, to talk poorly about another church in town, that thought should stop us dead in our tracks. And that's why that accountability is a grace to us. Because if we stop dead in our tracks, that is a grace to us. Okay, so three ways that we can watch our mouths when we're suffering, the first is guard against grumbling. The second here is remember faithful examples. So the Lord brings in some encouragement through, through James here in verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, this is verse 10, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So in verses 10 and 11, James encourages his readers to remember examples of those who did what what he wants them to do and did it well. He says, as examples of suffering and patience, let me hold up two examples for you, okay? One is the prophets, and the second is Job. And he does this to emphasize that those who are steadfast, who endure, who are patient, they're blessed. These are the people we want to be looking towards. So let's talk about the prophets first. He doesn't name which prophets, but if we look through the Old Testament, we can find plenty of examples of guys like this who suffered. So Isaiah, church tradition, leads us to believe that he was sawn in half. Ooh. Jeremiah, 
was thrown into a well and left to die, did end up getting back out of the well only in time to see the destruction, the catastrophic destruction of Jerusalem. Ezekiel had to lay on one side for 390 days. And then when he was done, had to lay on the other side for 40 days. And the only thing he had to eat during this time was bread baked on cow dung. Think about that next time you buy Ezekiel bread. I'm serious, that's what that's talking about. Some of you are looking that up. Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 38 says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Skipping to 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. But how did they respond? They spoke in the name of the Lord. They did what God told them to do anyway. They did not let intense but momentary suffering distract them from what God had called them to do. So that's the prophets. How about Job then? How in the world was he steadfast? Because I seem to remember him whining quite a bit. Well, here we get to see our compassionate and gracious God. Because he, Job did whine a bit to God and, and was rebuked for it. But, but here in this passage, Job is seen primarily as faithful. That's cool, right? That's an encouragement to us. Job went through unimaginable sorrow, losing his family, his wealth, his livelihood, his health, even his will to live. But he did not curse God and die at the suggestion of his wife, the one closest to him. And then in the end, God honored him. There's a verse here at the end of Job. Captures what the Lord said. Verse 42, I'm sorry, chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the words of rebuke, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, his buddy, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. As my servant Job has. Wow. Well done, good and faithful servant. See, Job suffered. He even stumbled. But he spoke rightly about God. So both the prophets and Job, they were blessed because they remained patient under trial. They hung in there. They obeyed. And if they did, how much more can we? Let's look how verse 11 ends. Verse 11 ends with saying, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So what James is saying is, guys, you already saw how this whole Job thing ended, right? God's purpose was to test his servant Job, to show that he was more glorious than anything that he took away. And at the end of Job's life, God was compassionate and merciful to Job. He rewarded Job's imperfect but consistent faithfulness with far more blessing than he started with. And then how much more can we endure on the other side of the cross when we know how this whole thing ends? Guys, we get it all back and so much more when Jesus comes again. And so when we remember that God is a judge but a merciful judge, then we, we can't wait 
to hear, man, that's going to be good news. What a relief it'll be when Jesus comes again to make things right. And so in the meantime, we can let that be an accountability to us. Remember, he's coming soon, and we want that to be such a relief. And we can learn from those who patiently suffered in Scripture, but we have other examples too. We can, we can learn from those around us in our local church, can't we? Kids, you can look at your parents and your parents' friends and your grandparents and your grandparents' friends and people their age. And if, if you're a grandparent here, you can look at the people even older than you, right? Think about Don and Virginia Lawson who were here every single week until they physically couldn't and are probably watching today. Think about them when you're tempted. And then, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good as for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, speaking like that all the while, hoping and praying that soon you get to hear. So three ways that we can watch our mouths when we're suffering we guard against grumbling, we remember faithful examples. But then our third is we maintain integrity of speech. Verse 12 says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So we'll need to back up here and and figure out where does this verse fit in because how it fits into James 5 isn't totally clear. It seems maybe that it's a, a hinge. I think that's, that's what I'm, I'm seeing, that it's maybe a hinge between verses 9 through 11 and then the rest of the book. The phrase above all that starts it, that doesn't mean most importantly, right? It's, it's not saying, okay, listen to this, this is the most important thing. It's, it's really saying, uh, here begins the conclusion. So, so it is beginning the end, but, but then it doesn't really have anything to do with verse 13 on. But there is a thread that... It continues from our verses from earlier, 9 through 11. So I think it fits most naturally in that section. And, and that thread is dealing with speech. How do, we, how do we talk? And then beginning to land the plane on the end of James. Okay, so the, the verse itself is talking about oaths. So we should probably define oaths. We're being warned against oaths, but what is an oath? Uh, good definition from Wayne Grudem in his book on Christian ethics. He says, an oath... It's an appeal for God's punishment if your statement is untruthful. An appeal for God's punishment if your statement is untruthful. So in other words, an oath, it emphasizes the seriousness of what the speaker is saying. It's saying, like saying, so help me God. Right? If, if I don't do this, I'm willing to accept the consequences. That's how truthful I'm trying to communicate to you I'm being. Uh, that's why we swear oaths while giving testimony in court for that exact same reason. So the question is, is the point of verse 12 that James is, is trying to condemn all oaths. Is that, is that what he's getting at? There's some people who, who do reach that conclusion. I don't think that that's what he's getting at, that to, to swear an oath in court or something like that is, is wrong, because I think context is key. So we see if we just go wider, Paul swore oaths, Jesus swore an oath um, in his trial, and then God even swore an oath. It says in Hebrews 6, 13 through 18, he uses the word oath. Okay, so it seems like oaths in some cases are permissible. So I think what James is getting after here is that we need to be people who have integrity of speech. 
The most important part of this verse is let your yes be yes and your no be no. So I think also this question will be informed by um, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount because this verse actually really seems to quote almost verbatim Jesus' words where Jesus talks about oaths. And then when we take Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and then a later passage in Matthew, we start to paint a picture of, of what Jesus is speaking against when he condemns oaths. It seems like there was a culture that had been built, even amongst religious people, where people were so untrustworthy with their speech that just to get somebody to believe you, you had to swear an oath. You had to say, okay, no, 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 now I'm being serious. But even then, you had to be careful because they had a system for weaseling out of it. So if, hey, if I swore by the temple, I mean, that didn't count. I swore by the temple. Oh, no, 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 you swore by the gold on the temple, so that, that actually does count. You're bound by that, right? So I think it'd be similar to maybe a child who um, is supposed to do something or said that they were going to do something, and they said, well, I said I'd do it, but I didn't say I promise, right? That kind of nitpicking. So the, the, I think the point of, of this verse is that we're to be people of our word. That's what James is going after, who have no need to reinforce our credibility. Maybe there's an opportunity or a reason where an oath would be necessary, but, but in everyday speech, we should be so trustworthy we don't need it. And so when we say we're going to do something, we're going to do it. Is that, is that you? Are you trustworthy? But... I think we've got more here because if we believe that this verse is tied to the rest of, of our verses today, then, then it might unlock something else because it's possible that suffering brought with it a greater temptation to compromise our integrity of speech. So maybe you've seen this. It's easier to twist the details on something when you know that there's greater consequences if you told the whole truth. When you're hurt, it can be tempting to set up your opponent's argument in a really lame way, a straw man, so that it's really easy to knock down and it feels really satisfying when you do. I think that this extends actually into letting your yes be yes and your no be no when you say you're going to do something you do and, and when you don't, you, you don't. It's easy to justify breaking what seem minor commitments and, and we call it flakiness because we're suffering. We feel overwhelmed with life. We think that that's okay. It, it, it seems that, that what James is, is really getting at is even in suffering, we need to maintain integrity of speech. And this is hard to hear, right? This is hard because you're like, man, how in the world do I do that? But here's the call. We maintain integrity of speech so that we don't fall under condemnation. Ooh, Christians, there's that accountability again. But it's good for us. It's good for us. Life is hard, but even when it's hard, it can be easy to cheat under pressure. And when we're tempted to crumble, crumble. Remember, at that moment, when we're tempted to give up our integrity of speech, what would happen at that moment if? Church, when Jesus comes, we want to be ready. And just like he stood at the door in James' time, he stands at the door now. He's coming. He is. And compared to all of eternity, he's, he's coming soon. And we should feel that holy pressure because we want to be excited when he returns. We want to have a clear conscience before him. 
And, and if we're believers, it's going to be a relief, right? It's going to be a relief. We are his. No matter what, no matter how imperfect we've been, he keeps us, he doesn't let us go. But we should, we should, we see in this text today, we should let his second coming be a healthy motivation to be careful with our mouths, especially when we're suffering and it's so easy not to so that when he comes, we can greet him with open arms. Guys, Jesus is coming again. And that thought should make us relieved, but it should also make us tremble. So sometimes the simplest way to say something is the best. So how do we remember that this, this week? What do we latch on to? Well, if you know this song, would you sing with me? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down with love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. For the Father up above is looking down with love. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. For the Father up above is looking down with love. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Let's pray. Lord, this truth is simple, but it is hard to remember. Life's hard, and we're tempted to turn against each other, to stop running, to crumble under pressure. Help us to remember that you are coming soon. And I pray that that would bring us great encouragement and also great accountability as we wait for your return. And I pray that that would affect every bit of us all the way down to our speech. It's in your name we pray. Amen.